And it's the third Wiki Game Guides Comcast. I'm Simon Wu. And I'm Alex Miller. And thanks for joining us. Let's kick it off immediately with our community callback segment. We've got a lot of comments and content that you guys sent in to go through, which is really good. We're uh, really pleased about that. But let's get started. Yeah, we just like to thank you guys for that. It's as we said from the very beginning. That's, that's the point of this is to have you guys comment and con- contribute. So, thanks so much. Okay, starting us off is Scumbag Ben with the very short comment topic overload, and that's a reference to last week. We went over quite a few things, and uh, the show notes were pretty extensive. So. As far as this week and going forwards, we've streamlined the show notes, and we're going to continue to do that to try and make it easier to go through, but also easier to respond to certain topics and certain things that we talk about. Uh, But also this week, we're going to focus on uh, a few core topics, not change around as much as we did last time, but to sort of go very much in depth into a few key things. Rage Quit says, again, thanks for the mention. Just to clear up my name, I got the idea from this. And this being the thing that says, according to a Cambridge University study, you know, you everything in the word ha- can change except the first and last letters, and you'll still understand it. Uh, that study. He then finishes by saying, keep up the work. Great podcast. And Alex, I believe last week, you actually wanted to interject when I had confusion over that name to begin with about to cite the survey uh but for the sake of time we kind of just moved on but yeah uh thanks for the guy thanks for that comment yeah i thought about bringing it up but we were just sort of moving along there next is rare daniel 46 with the comment i hope you talk about the new assassin's creed 3 trailer very good show guys always good to listen to and very better quality since the last podcast thanks a lot as we said uh, before in the last podcast, we've done a lot to try and improve the audio quality for the show. And actually, uh, because you mentioned this, we did actually look a lot into the Assassin's Creed 3 trailer, and that's going to be one of our, our key discussions this week is Assassin's Creed 3 and pretty much all we know about that and all we think about that and just what what we believe is going to happen with the franchise. So just going forward, if any of you guys want to comment or suggest things, as we've seen here, we're very happy to do segments that are recommended by our listeners. Right. The next two I'm going to take together because they both have to do with the same topic about back-end services. Dalton32389 says, anyone else unable to download on iTunes? I use the link at the top of the page. It looks like it starts and finishes the download, but isn't playing when I double-click. It just starts downloading again. Uh, followed by Phantom Roy 8 who says, Anyone getting linked to SkyDrive? And yeah, we've been working out some issues with the backend services. They're fixed now, uh, and hopefully that won't happen again in the future. Because this is the first episode where we actually took responsibility for hosting and distributing the podcast. Um, Dan and John actually took the first one for us, and we should thank them again for everything they've done and uh, for hosting the first one so that we could get a bigger audience that way and for navigating the website functionality to let us post. Uh, I know they must be about to punch us for the amount of times we've emailed them asking about this or that or to do something or to promote our uh, post on the site, but we think we've got it all figured out now. Um, we actually had a tense moment uh, the day when we released the first uh 
this pod, the last podcast, where we blew through our bandwidth cap on our hosting service, and we had to do an emergency fix on that. But I think we we think we've got it all figured out right now. So thanks for that. Yeah, you guys have been great so far. We had something like a like a one gig uh, gig cap or something, Simon, and I remember we blew through that in a matter of maybe like an hour or two. It was it was it was pretty crazy. So we had to upgrade, and you guys just kept listening and streaming and we'd like to thank you for that i remember i was getting texts from simon throughout the day saying oh well they've gone through you know this amount of gigs they've gone through you know four gigs now five gigs six gigs i got one text at some point saying they've gone through 10 gigs and that was only like halfway through the day so it means a lot to us that you guys are listening and it just shows us that you know what we're doing matters at least to someone and that's what makes it all worthwhile so next is Dick Sickle with another great podcast, guys. Love the topic-based discussions, but I would like to see what each of you may be playing in the past week. Uh, he says in parentheses, Diablo 3. It's just something I thought would be cool if you gave opinions on the games that came out in the past week, if you played them, and a little review on them. Obviously, this isn't that type of podcast, and even without it, you guys are great to listen to. Well, thanks for the compliments there. I always like to stroke our egos. But we will do that briefly uh, before starting new topics uh, going forwards, but not really a review. That's that's more Dan and John's area with their videos, so I don't want to take away from their business, uh, especially if it's a major release that has tons of press and reviews already because, you know, you can already go and see that on Wiki Game Guides. But we'll definitely mention, you know, what we're playing, what we're doing in games. I know this week I've sort of started something fun that I, I thought would be interesting to do would be to play all these Assassin's Creed games from 1 through Revelations uh, all in a row uh, in preparations for Assassin's Creed 3. So I'm just getting going with Assassin's Creed 1 and partway through that. I think, Simon, what are you doing? Right, I'm doing something similar to you, except it's now that everything's finished with Mass Effect, I'm doing a complete Mass Effect Insanity run, kind of like semblances on the site, uh, starting with one, going through two, three, all the DLC, and hopefully I finish sometime around when the uh, extended cut ending DLC comes out this summer, and so that'll be really nice. Yeah, read that extended cut DLC as makeup work. (laughs) Right. All right, so let's see. K-R-N says, I really liked episode one. I was genuinely pleased with how much you covered in the different segments, especially in the Halo 4 part. And so, thanks for that. Tying into um, Topic Overload by Scumbag Ben above, uh, we've heard a lot of good things about especially that Halo 4 part, so we're going to try and do more in-depth analysis of specific games. So, like um, Rare Daniel was suggesting, this week we're going to do it give that same treatment to Assassin's Creed 3. Yeah, next is Millennium Master 18 with a short essay. Uh, this is the exact, This is actually the, exactly the kind of thing that we asked for from you guys, and we're glad you were able to send it in. And it just shows that you're willing to take the time to really send in and contribute, and that's, that's the thing we love about this community. So it reads in order to keep the companies from screwing each other to such great extents in online streaming services the organization responsible for keeping an even competition between companies whichever that is is going to have to extend its regulatory capabilities over digital media and services that's a problem i believe we haven't worked on enough the law is not that in depth regarding digital media we just keep putting band-aids over a gaping wound 
It's due to the inattention on this matter why SOPA or PIPA were even considered as rational propositions in the first place. We urgently need for the government to make an intricate def de definition of the law with regards to the Internet. It has to do it in a way that the freedom of the Internet is both respected and protected, and that outright illegal acts, such as distribution of child pornography, identity theft, and illicit moves in corporate competition, can be rightly punished within the U U.S.'s capabilities. Note, I can't sincerely include piracy as an outright illegal act. It's a gray area at most, since it's a righteous consequence of media overpricing. A stirring oration, sir. Um, wow, where do we even begin to respond to that? Um, I agree with you that it's it really is a wild west out there as far as um, you know as far as the law is concerned in this area. All we really know is that all the companies are suing each other. I saw an, an amusing chart recently of all the major tech companies, and there was just it was just a spider web of who had patent litigation against each other. It was pretty crazy. Well, as, as we've seen in the last three or four years, Simon, there's been Apple sued HTC, and HTC sued Apple, and Samsung sued Apple, and Apple sued H uh, Samsung, and Samsung sued HTC, and HTC sued Samsung. And it's just around and around the merry-go-round we go, and just everybody's suing everybody else, and it, it's not really getting anything done. You know, all it is is just, oh, well, they can't say they're suing us. We're going to sue them. You know, it's, it's, it's not really accomplishing anything. And it just makes everything worse, in my opinion. As far as you're uh, imploring the government or some regulatory agency like the FCC to try and get the, all of this under control, it's, it's, it's really hard because Congress is just full of crusty old men. And we've seen that with SOPA and PIPA, Chris Dodd, the... Connecticut senator who retired from the Senate to head the MPAA. Clearly, that was an inside interest to try and defend the movie industry, maybe a little overzealously, but it just shows the power of inside interests and lobbying. And it's going to be really hard to try and get this intricate definition that you ask for passed, really, because as we've seen with so many laws and so much of the progress, I say that in quotes, that we've seen in Congress recently, special interests really tear it to pieces and you're left without very much meaningful legislation. That being said, if, you, if you're disgruntled by all this, you could just move to Germany where in regional by-elections in uh, West Rhine-Westphalia, the most populous state, the Pirate Party, I think, actually gained significant seats in legislature. Or, for that matter, just go to Sweden, I think, where it originated. Right. Um, but that's really the kind of in-depth answer and response to our questions that we'd really like to see. And so we thank you, Millennium Master 18, uh, so much for that. Uh, moving on to um, user-submitted, or why did I say user? Audience-submitted articles. Here's one that ties into last week's d topics, saying, Microsoft rolling out new apps to Xbox 360, including Muzu.tv and Manga in the U.S. That's an end gadget. I don't know what either of those are, but from the article, it says Muzu.tv has a ton of music videos. I guess it's like Vivo. 
and manga entertainment has some kind of free video content. Maybe it's all manga like Naruto and Avatar. But it's good to see just more services being aggregated, collected. But again, we have to go back to our discussion last week and and say that it has to be the whole catalog and it has to not be fragmented. Yeah, and this is just adding to the discussion we've had the last couple of weeks about Microsoft's attempts to make this total home media network device. And again, we remind you that they are apps, so if we if the Xbox V next has the Windows 8 core like we talked about last week, we may be able to see even more cross-platform entertainment, especially on Windows 8 tablets, which uh, the consumer preview build of Windows 8 that's currently out has an Xbox hub, has video and music hubs, and I could see that this could be very easily aggregated across Windows Phone, Windows 8, and Xbox. Okay, and our second uh, community-submitted article is an also an Engadget article about Comcast, who is firing back over Xfinity TV's claims that they're violating net neutrality on the Xbox 360. They're saying there's no way, no how, they're violating this. Comcast is, uh, they're trying to change the argument against them. Um, what they're saying is that the DCSP tags that they used to identify traffic, um, they're not causing data favoritism as, as, sorry, as Netflix has claimed. Uh, they just have to be used. And what they do is they're sidelining the Xfinity content so that this doesn't count towards the hard cap of 250 gigabytes. However, any other content such as Netflix or Hulu or what have you will count towards this 250 gigabyte data cap. So a lot of people are saying that this is just a way of getting around net neutrality while still violating it. So we're not going to get too in-depth into it. We're going to throw the link up with the show notes you guys can go ahead and read it, and we'd love to hear comments on it. But that's that's basically the story. That's that's what we're going to say. Right, and we have a listener question about something we said uh, last week. It said, you said that cross-platform games could finally be realized, but won't they be limited by the least common denominator, that is, Windows Phone? Won't they be all very simple, casual games? And I have an answer to that because... Um, I'm a Microsoft Power user, and so to that end, I have a Windows Phone. It is true that with Windows Phone 7 that the limits are a 1.5 gigahertz single-core processor, 512 megabytes of RAM, 16 gigabytes of storage, and a very low 800 by 480 screen resolution. That being said, with Windows Phone 8, not only is it going to have the full functionality and development friendliness of the Windows Core, uh, the baseline specs are going to be up significantly. They're going to allow maybe dual, even quad-core processors that we're now starting to uh, seep onto Android phones like the Galaxy S3. It's going to allow one gigabyte or more of RAM, more storage, like 32, 64. We might push 128. That'd be crazy because that'd have as much storage as ultrabooks, multiple resolutions like the QHD and Full HD screens we're seeing on the high-end Android phones, and more importantly for gaming probably, 
the phone will detect and switch to Wi-Fi whenever possible to save data and provide faster connections. And that's better for things like turn-based games and higher uh, complexity features. So that's my response to that question about cross-platform games. Hopefully the entire bar can be raised significantly. And maybe with cross-platform games, it won't even be like the same paradigm. You play the same type of game. You're not just playing uh, Angry Birds the, the whole time. I could see how you could play Infinity Blade on the Xbox and, uh, you know, I mean not the Xbox, the Windows phone and a Windows tablet. Then when you play the Xbox, it becomes maybe like a full-featured RPG like Oblivion, and somehow they all tie into each other. That's that's just a thought, because I know in Infinity Blade, you are meandering around. What if you just had full control over it, and it became more robust when you did that on the console? And so, uh, that's, that's it for our community segment, but that was really significant in the amount of feedback we've gotten. Again, we'd invite you to uh, comment below on this podcast. We'd also invite you to send us more involved emails to comcastwgg at gmail.com. And if you're just listening and you don't have an account, we can, you can still email us, but we'd uh, encourage you to set up an account. I know that I was a passive listener for the longest time. I just listen and watch Dan and John's guides, really didn't get involved. But I found a lot. I found it a lot more enriching when I did, and so uh, please do. It take it really only takes a moment, and um, the reward from that is pretty significant. I'm pretty sure Simon, you just copied that almost word for word for from the... NPR. Exactly. The pledge drives. Call six seven eight five five three ninety ninety one to submit your pledge today to the WGG Comcast. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you want to send us money or games. That'd be cool. Um, but really, guys, thanks a lot for that, and especially signing up on the site. It allows you to interact with us a little bit more closely than just an email, though we'll happily take that. we love if you'd sign up on the site and just Comcast on the, sorry, on, the, on, the, on the site and comment on the Comcast. All right, and let's move on to our first topic. Thank you for all those comments and emails. Please keep them coming. We'll definitely continue to integrate them. And... For those people who said we may have lost a bit of focus during our last podcast, we're going to try and really pare it down and focus our attention on key topics. And so our first one under discussion today is Assassin's Creed 3. We feel like enough time has gone by for the news and all the dust to settle, and now we can really take a look. So Ubisoft has promised that this is going to be the end of the trilogy from the very beginning with Assassin's Creed 1, they've said that the ultimate battle between the Templars and the Assassins is going to culminate in, in 2012 with the, the whole Mayan thing, 12-21-12. And so what we're wondering is, are there going to be any more spin-offs after this? And we're sort of wondering how there could be, because everything they've told us, everything that they've hinted at or suggested would seem to would seem that this is going to be it, that this is going to be the end of the story. But I'm not I'm not really sure, given the the popularity and success of the Assassin's Creed two uh spin-off games. Brotherhood and Revelations really gave them a whole new life in between. And we kept waiting for three, but 
we kept waiting, but they kept giving us good games. However, given their philosophy that this has the story has to be concluded by the actual date in the real world, uh, I really don't see how we could continue the story after it's already been resolved. You know, and that leads us into another problem is, are they rushing this current game just to try and get it out in time and make sure that happens? Luckily, Simon, uh, all the things that I've been reading have suggested that they actually haven't. From uh, I've read, I read an article um, a little while ago where an insider at Ubisoft said that ever since Assassin's Creed 2 went to press, you know, it went out, everybody started playing it, they immediately started working on Assassin's Creed 3. And they had different little subdivisions or different divisions of their company working on Revelation, Brotherhood, those games. So in the past, what's it been, three, two, three years, four years, something like that, they've been working on this game the entire time. And is that, that gameplay trailer that came out about a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that, a little while ago, and at the very beginning it said, this is pre-alpha footage. And it already looks really good. So I think that it doesn't look as rushed as some people might think. All right, fair points there. And I would like to say that Assassin's Creed is another one of those franchises, going back to the discussion we had in our first podcast, one of those franchises where I'm completely uh, involved and invested. That is to say, I'm reading all of the novels, watching all of the short films, all the animated films, looking at all the comics, and all the secondary material they provided. And let me tell you, they actually provide a significant amount that's not in the games. The novels are just novelizations of the various games, but for Assassin's Creed 1, the novelization, there was a tremendous amount that foreshadowed a lot of the things we saw in Revelations. Uh, For example, if you read it, it's goes beyond what Assassin's Creed 1 is, the ending of Assassin's Creed 1, and then it actually t- uh, delves into what happens in the DS game, which was good for me because I was never going to play it on DS. It was good to know what happened uh, on those missions. But more importantly, it kept going into uh, older life and those flashes that Ubisoft threw into Revelations. And so if you had read the novels, you already completely knew what was going to happen. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's interesting to see how, again, secondary material can provide so much uh, to the primary game world. And that is something we've seen throughout the Assassin's Creed series is a lot of these extra little stories and side plots, you could say, and it's, it just adds to the depth and the uh, the involvement in the story and in the character that I think helps make the game as good as it is. However, are we going to be able to see material like that given that there's not going to be the same big city environments that we've seen in previous games? I think uh, there's going to be just this big wilderness, which is going to be the, the central area for the game. And I've seen the, the parkour through the trees, and that looks like it's going to work, and it looks really fun and interesting and different. But given the fact that it's the wilderness, that there's not that many people there, we're going to see the same level of depth and uh, interaction, you think? 
Well, I just hope that they make it really obvious which branches you can uh, jump on because I could very easily see myself getting overwhelmed and confused trying to jump on various different branches and clearly those aren't ones meant for standing on, you know, and I'll just keep falling out of the trees constantly. I mean, are we injecting Assassin's Creed with Elder Scrolls? We saw in the trailers these vast sweeping vistas of forests and rivers and waterfalls and snow-capped mountains. Where are we going? How is this paradigm shift going to work? And more importantly, are you, the audience, okay with that when all we've seen before are giant ancient cities? And we should be quick to point out, Simon, that it's not like there's going to be no cities in the game. There are going to be several... Cities of considerable size, I think New York or Philadelphia. One, I know one. Of, I think Philadelphia actually isn't in it, but it's New York and all these these cities along the Eastern Seaboard. They will be part of the game, but they will be connected by this vast wilderness. So, I'm wondering how much time you're spending in one versus the other is going to impact how the game actually plays out. Well, you mentioning that this wilderness is going to connect them immediately reminds me of the sequences that I hated from Assassin's Creed 1, if you will all recall. The kingdom region, which was the go-between between, you know, the various cities, Akka, Damascus, Masayaf, uh, Jerusalem. You just, you, you'd, before you got fast travel, you'd just be riding in them for hours trying to get to another place. However, Simon, luckily, I think the wilderness in Assassin's Creed 3 looks a good bit different from Kingdom Assassin's Creed 1. I think the main difference is in uh, AC1, there's really nothing to do. Like, you would get on your horse, if you had your horse, and you just ride and hopefully avoid guards and just sort of gallop along, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, and eventually you're there. Versus in the wilderness, from everything I've read and everything I've seen, it looks like there's going to be a lot more to do, a lot more involved. Like, there will be people... You can track through the wilderness. There will be wild animals. You could fight if you want to be a badass and take on a bear. You know, there's all these things you can go out and do in the wilderness that it looks like it's much more interesting and much more alive uh, when, compa- when compared to the kingdom, which was just sort of there. All right, fair point. And back to maybe we are injecting uh, Assassin's Creed with a bit of Elder Scrolls. But um, I want to move on and talk about uh, there were a lot of people in the community who were not pleased that Ubisoft took time off to make Brotherhood and Revelations. I actually think that was a very smart move because in doing so, they have very subtly introduced a lot of new gameplay elements that will be very relevant in uh, the time frame and environment of Assassin's Creed 3. So, for example, guns in uh, Brotherhood, but especially Revelations, the enemies with guns were considerably ramped up, and you had to ner- learn how to deal with them. In addition, grenades, or, well, bombs at that point, but what I think will definitely be grenades in Assassin's Creed Three, were introduced. So, in doing so, they have prepared us uh, well for the time frame we're currently in, dealing with tons of enemies with guns and using grenades and probably bet it, getting more adept at doing so. And also, I think just putting out that content in between the release of Assassin's Creed 2 and Assassin's Creed 3 has kept the series alive. It's kept it relevant and in people's mind. And I, I completely agree with what you're saying there, that it's, sort of, it's helped to level out and even out the learning curve so it's not quite as steep as it would have been if you went straight from Assassin's Creed 2 to Assassin's Creed 3. Because otherwise, I think it would be pretty significant. 
even now, as the trailer shows, you're going to need to move, uh, make combat a lot faster and a lot more dynamic because, as we already prefaced from uh, Assassin's Creed Revelations, they'll just shoot you if you don't move fast enough. And really, we're seeing a complete turnaround, I think, of the gameplay of Assassin's Creed 3, where it's no longer the ubiquitous and classic, I might say at this point, uh, counterattack, counterattack, chain, counterattack. And Simon, I almost wonder if this is setting up the Desmond storyline for its ultimate conclusion, because as we all know, guns are a very relevant and important part of combat here in 2012, and as such, Desmond facing the Templars will most likely be facing enemies using firearms, and so I'm wondering if this is Ubisoft's way of warming you up to take on the Templars in the real world, because you saw in Assassin's Creed, I think, 2 when you broke out, that... You're, you're fighting them hand-to-hand. Luckily, they didn't have firearms because that's what Desmond was used to doing as uh, Altair. is doing that hand-to-hand fighting since he didn't have any blades. So I think this is going along with that way of leveling off the learning curve. I think this is a clever way of bringing in new weapons and getting people used to fighting these so that Desmond can learn through the bleeding effect and eventually be able to take on the Templars in the real world. Right. At the end of Assassin's Creed 2, when you escape, um, Lucy hands you a hidden blade, and the combat felt kind of ridiculously silly to me, that they would only have stun batons, and you had the hidden blade, and you were kind of fighting them as Vidic was sending legions of them at you. I felt like there probably should have been you know, guns, and you should have been evading those, but... Clearly, that wasn't a gameplay mechanic they were going to introduce in the ending sequence of a game, Not especially not when the credits were rolling, pretty much. Um, but, we're well, let's talk about that. Is there going to be a lot more present-day Desmond than we've seen before in his story? Because it's all about him now. All the previous games have just been building up him getting enough skills, getting enough memories, and... From the end of Revelations, he appears to have cracked that. I'm not going into too much detail for those of you who don't want it spoiled, but I think he's going to have to be at least an equal player in this title. And especially if Ubisoft is trying to actually conclude this story and bring it to an end, because Desmond is where we started. That's where the whole whole story, the whole concept was presented to us through him. And so I think... Even if he doesn't play as large a role in the the first half of the game, I think the second half of the game is definitely going to see a lot of Desmond and a lot of Desmond gameplay. Because otherwise, I don't see how they're going to resolve the story just through going like Connor in the American Revolution. Right. And of course we know that the story is going to be uh, integrally tied into events... And uh, real-life events, real-life people, figures. Well, we've seen George Washington. There's been all these uh, rumors and news speculation that you know Benjamin Franklin will play an integral part as well. I'm sure that um, all of them will factor in somehow. But something that's really interesting about the Assassin's Creed games, and this is in an article I read a little while ago, was that one of the first things they do when planning an Assassin's Creed game is looking at when people died. They look at for significant and or otherwise important historical figures who died during a certain period. They look at how they died, they look at when they died, they look at where they died, and then they take these characters and they just 
throw an assassin in the mix. They make it so that the assassin was the catalyst for their death instead of whatever other reason it was. And so what's interesting is you'll be getting to go alongside these historical figures and all the ones you, you know and or may love, I don't know, uh, you're not going to be probably killing them because they didn't die in that time. However, characters, or not characters, people, historical figures who did die during that time are all fair game and could all be targets, which I think is an interesting way of planning a game. Right. That's, it's definitely really interesting. I actually didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, how are the Templar, how's the fight of Templars v. Assassins going to figure into this? Ubisoft have done a very good job thus far, I feel, of tying it all in, um, tying in key historical figures, rulers, thinkers into this fight. And from all the trailers, they would suggest that it's going to be the Americans first, the British, the British being the Templars. So I'm not sure how that will go over with our listeners across the pond, but I think from the trailers, it also would suggest that it's not that black and white. I I remember a line where the assassin was saying something along the sorts of, like, it doesn't matter which side you're on. So it sounds like... There's going to be a, a bit of a mix, you know, some Templars on one side, some Templars on the other, and that Connor will go after either side uh, regardless of their uh, war allegiances. Right. I mean, he himself is half Indian, half British, so that alone should say how this is going to conflict and throw the whole thing into probably disarray. But on, on that note, I want to hope that they bring back the Subject 16 Puzzles, um, which were so incredibly challenging, but also mind-blowing in terms of what they revealed, if you could figure them out. And, for example, they were the things that were these puzzles where you'd have to figure out, for example, like it says um, 64 squares, all taken, no moves, and so you'd, the secret was that you moved your chess piece off the board entirely. It's like, don't play their games. It's that sort of weird logic and stuff that revealed clues that were awesome. For example, that World War II was an experiment among Templars, Stalin, Roosevelt, Hitler, all Templars, trying to assess the power of Eden by creating a global conflict. The way they tie in real-life historical events and completely twist them into the fight v. Assassins v. Templars is was incredible in that sense. And this is just goes back to my point earlier where I was hoping that we're going to see the same level of story and extra content and side plots in this game despite the wilderness setting and i'm almost wondering if they can incorporate the wilderness setting maybe you find buried treasure or something under a tree or behind a rock or something like you find little messages left by something or someone and somehow incorporate the the wilderness setting to add these excellent stories and these excellent puzzles which i know i know you love i remember several years ago we spent a ton of time playing the game god tower and its sequel you would just go pounding through that with all these crazy puzzles so i know that's something you enjoy. I enjoyed it as well. So hopefully we'll see something similar in Assassin's Creed 3 because I think that adds a lot of variance to the game that it switches it up so it's not just counterattack, 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 finishing move. So, which, while fun, can get repetitive after a while. So I think this, 
varied way of setting up the game can really benefit it. And I'll, even though I want the subject 16 puzzles back, there are some things that I don't want back. Um, those being these uh, these block puzzles that you've been doing in Revelations where you're like placing things and navigating a terrain. I feel like that's almost a portal thing in a way. Let Yeah, let terrain navigation through various puzzle chambers be for portal. Uh, Assassin's Creed doesn't need to get involved with that. Um, also, den defense, that was a silly exercise. I did it once, got the achievement, then I leveled up all my dudes to uh, masters, locked all the dens, and never had to do it again. I spent like 15 minutes trying to learn it once for an achievement for something that I'd never use again. And then finally, um, I don't know how they're going to do the Mediterranean strategy uh, game that they've done in Brotherhood and Revelations, but whatever they do, it should not get any more involved than it already was in uh, Revelations, where not only did you have your guys, but you could assign your guys to specific dens in other places, and you had to manage the dens, the like sub-dens in all of those cities as well, and then your total guys, and you'd constantly be under attack, and if you went on a long mission, you were screwed because you couldn't micromanage it correctly at the time. And I think that all comes down to Ezio being the... Uh, assassins basically guild master and at that point in time which i'm wondering what the hierarchy of the assassins is going to be like in assassins creed 3 what the their presence in the new world will be like and most likely given that it's probably not gonna see connor be the guild master for the assassins at least in america i don't think we're gonna probably face that same sort of intense level of micromanagement Right, and uh, tying this all back into uh, where we started this discussion, if they even wanted to continue the story, if they wanted to pull a Halo and, you know, after a very successful trilogy, start a new one, how do they do so? Desmond has, I don't think they'll leave it on a cliffhanger, Desmond has clearly going to save the world at the, in the nick of time from Abstergo and the Templars, it's not like Halo where we left Master Chief drifting in space and we can invent a new enemy. I mean, hopefully, I think this will resolve, finally, the conflict between Templars and Assassins. But, that being said, what I think they could do, and if they pull it off correctly, could be very successful, is that they have episodic content. This is a new version of episodic gaming, um, where they relive just chunks of various ancestors from all throughout time. And I think that could be a lot of fun. I've, I've read on a lot of forums, especially before America was announced as the setting for Assassin's Creed 3. A lot of people wanted to see an Assassin's Creed game take place in uh, J- Japan, China. The, the Far East, I think, was, was one of the, the settings that people were really clamoring for. And I think just filling in those various places you know you could do something in you know northern europe or or africa or i've even heard uh mention of uh, a pirates kind of assassin's creed set in the caribbean so all these these different settings and times could provide a lot of different kinds of gameplay a lot of different gameplay elements and a lot of different stories that if done correctly and if not 
priced at prohibitive levels, I think could be a lot of fun and could be worth it, worth it for them. Several hours in the life of this ancestor and this following this storyline, and not only does it give us the chance to um, go into different locations, it also gives us the chance to go into different time periods, and maybe we could see various different gameplay mechanics based on that. If we go more into the present, uh, let's say World War One, then they might, I don't know if this will be a good idea, it'll depend on how warm the reception is to it and how well they implement it, more of a third-person shooter type thing on the trenches. I don't know if that will be successful. But I wanted to quickly, again, inject the secondary material into this discussion because there was a short film, uh, animated short film, recently released, uh, telling about Ezio's last days when he is contacted... Uh, in person by an assassin from China who's being persecuted by the Ming Emperor who is a Templar. And again, this is a way they managed to tie in all these historical figures uh, into this conflict and do so well in a rich narrative even outside the games. That's one vector you could take to bring it to China. You could have the life of this Chinese young Chinese assassin after he uh, she has been trained by Ezio. And, I mean, yeah, as I said, Simon, I think if they do this correctly, it could be a lot of fun. And, I mean, there's, there's an entire world, there's entire history books filled with potential targets and potential locations. So who knows? We'll see, we'll see what they do. But it, it could be interesting, and we'd love to hear what you guys would want and what you guys think they may do. So just comment below, write in the forums, um, or email us. So... Yeah, and with that, we're going to conclude that discussion uh, for this week, and we're going to move on to our next topic, which um, I personally have a lot to say about. Hardcore gamers, the few, the proud, the marginalized. Strap yourself in, folks. All right, this week we're going to take a very long and very hard look at how the current trends in the world in economics and demand are really going to impact us as a community in terms of the next generation of games and how the industry is going to move forward as a result. So what we know is the market is currently terrible, but right now, hardcore gamers, that is us, are saying that the next generation, it, we're pinning the next generation as the thing that's going to resurrect demand and provide a huge leap in technical quality, but it might not. And that's, that's what's depressing to me. Time is not on our side. Time is on the side of the mindless legions of casual iOS and Facebook. I, I hesitate to even call them gamers. They're just mindless zombies, slaves, just chained to their uh, cityville and... And, um, yeah. Watch out, Simon. Zing will sue you for using Ville. They're suing someone for using Pyramid Ville. So, watch what you say. Screw them. Anywho, the, um, the next generation of consoles, I'm afraid, might be underwhelming to us. We've seen the trend that consoles are becoming predominantly now set-top boxes with entertainment services 
uh, big, moving to the fore and gaming taking just a small role in that. And I, I think that this next generation of consoles will provide uh, the makers a clean break, a breaking point to execute this paradigm shift, wherein they move from gaming as the fore in the console itself to gaming as a subset. And what I mean by that in the execution is that we're not going to see the huge technical leap that we once predicted. And Simon, we, we should keep in mind when saying this that this is all something that's happened before. This is not something new. Uh, several years ago, when consoles really came to the scene, PC gamers faced the exact same situation where no longer were they the main focus of developers and no longer were they the main focus of those in the industry designing the newest and best hardware. So... I think we can look to that as an example, but also hopefully look to that as something we can avoid because as predominantly console gamers, we don't want to see what happened to the PC gamers where they got really relegated to almost second-class citizens in terms of development time. We don't want to see that happen to consoles as it did to the PC gamers. Well, I'm afraid that if these um, are going to be more ubiquitous now... Uh, that Microsoft and Sony are going to cater to the lowest common denominator. And instead of really amping up the technical specs and making this, eh, you know, keeping it around $400, $500, I'm sure the price will fall as time goes on, aiming to make it a $99 or a $50 device and maybe giving a marginal bump to the specs, but really focusing on entertainment. And this this may have something to do with dropping uh, sales figures for games. MPD, which is a market research firm, uh, released uh, reports recently saying that in the month of April, gamers spent 42% less on video games than uh, in the same period last year. And I think this is adding to a trend of you know, buying less games, buying less consoles. And the entire market, which includes sales of both consoles and games, was down 32% overall in April. So... I'm thinking, Simon, that this, that's, this is probably what's leading to that. So I'm not really sure uh, how one would address that. Do we go out and buy more games? What do we, what do we have to do to, to make ourselves heard and to make ourselves relevant again? Right, and there, there are really no easy answers to that question. That's something we really want uh, feedback from you guys for. How can we um, bring ourselves back to the fore, or can we? Now, we also know that mobile divisions in publishing firms like EA and Activision Blizzard are really moving to the fore now. We also know that Kickstarter funding, uh, this entire mechanism of crowdsourcing, is providing a different an alternative to the usual way uh, that developers usually had to sign their souls out to pretty much either EA or Activision or maybe Microsoft Game Studios to even get on the map. That's going to change the way that we think about them. And EA has already announced their intentions to become more of a mobile gaming company and significantly reducing dependency on traditional packaged games. So they're trying to become the Zynga and not become the EA now. We, we should be quick to point out that at least so far, console gaming is, is, is still on top in terms of market share of total gaming. However, recently uh, mobile gaming and social gaming, which is what you, you are calling the, 
maybe gamers, those those Facebook players, um, those have actually or overcome uh, PC gamers um, and occupied now the second and third spot overall in the market. Yeah, and I mean, we don't want to rain on Dan and John's parade that they got into E3. Obviously, this is a huge step for them in terms of their legitimacy in establishing uh, a recognized and reputable gaming site on the internet. But the fact is, THQ has dropped out of it, and Gamescom, um, one of the more pr- uh, kind of prestigious and more recognized conferences, THQ, Nintendo, and Sega announced that they are not going to attend this year. So we might even see the drop-off and end of the gaming conference as we know it in favor of this Kickstarter, indie, just blog and Twitter game releases and news. And on top of that, I read somewhere else, I don't. Blizzard isn't holding BlizzCon this year also, so that's another major developer conference that's just gone. It's not there this year. These publishers, I mean, w- there's no secret about it. They intend to about-face and tackle mobile gaming in earnest. The question is, how much are we relegated? It's not how much are they going to focus on mobile gaming. It's how much are they going to leave us behind. And what we are could very well be witnessing is the end of console gaming as we know it. Because, as I said before... This transition to the new console generation is a natural break point for OEMs, for developers, for publishers, all to switch decisively in favor of mobile gaming, in favor of entertainment services. Because, obviously, why spend so much time developing a console game intensively with a huge team, with huge production budgets, with so much effort... And with so much marketing campaign, wherein it could fail spectacularly because we judge it harshly, when you could just crank out a tiny mobile game for pennies and make millions. I mean, that's where you saw developers like PopCap make these little games for, not even for smartphones, you know, they, they have these games on traditional cell phones or on computers sometimes, like either through Facebook or another social platform, and they it cost them little to make this game, almost nothing, and they would bring in millions and millions and millions of dollars of pure profit. Right, and I'm going to kick it over to art history because I know you're an art history guy. Um, Unfortunately, it's like the Renaissance. Art follows the money, and we aren't where the money is. The money is in mobile games, sadly. And I apologize for the rant I'm about to go on, but uh, there was recently news that Draw Something, which caught fire like on the Southern California scale, had billions of drawings and millions of players simultaneously active, and it recently, its popularity began plummeting in usership just as the entire crowd moved on to something new. It, it just seems like such a fickle and temporary crowd, and it feels extremely silly to me that these masses can be so easily enthralled by just this trifle 
of the week, whatever reused tower defense or physics engine game it is, or if they just port an old favorite game like Scrabble onto the mobile platform, whatever that happens to be, because console and PC game gamers and gaming have such enthusiastic and passionate communities with rich backgrounds in the games and content that is that they actively and eagerly partake in, and many of them being works of art and craftsmanship even in the level of design and execution. But the issue with that, Simon, is that any console and PC gamer will complain if a game is not X amount of hours. If they don't feel like they're getting their money's worth in the amount of time played in a game, they're going to complain and, and not be content. Which means that these developers have to develop multi-hour games. You know, we're talking something like 10, 20, 30 hours minimum for some games. Whereas these little mobile games, you only have to play for a little bit. They only have to last long enough to hold someone's attention to buy it after, you know, a minute playing a demo or a minute playing a trial. And then they'll play it for a week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe buy some extra content, and then they'll move on. But at that point, they've made all the profit they need to out of the game because they put almost nothing into it. And the just the issue with uh, console and PC gaming is that there's just such a long turnaround between buying a game and when someone finishes it and looks to buy another game that it's just not as profitable as these mobile games. Right, and again, there really isn't an easy answer to how we're going to solve this. But if there's one thing that I do not want this community to descend into, it's... It's for us to stop having our high level of expectations of the industry and dropping to the level where just to stay afloat, we accept, you know, any trifle as as good and just play it just to support them. That's not what I want. We shouldn't play shit just because it's shit. Yeah, more or less. For the sake of just doing it so that we keep up, you know, our name. That's That would be the last thing that I want. Uh, for us to devolve into. And with that, um, I apologize for my passionate feelings. Maybe some of you share those opinions, but um, now we're going to take a break before moving on to our final segment. And now for our final segment, Better with Connect. We're going to take a look in depth at whether we think that the Connect thus far has really lived up to expectations, whether it's been implemented in ways that has been promised. And we've all seen, uh, hopefully, Dan and John's drink alongs with both Connect Star Wars and Tiger Woods PGA, also with Connect. So, Alex? Yeah, so originally when we first heard of the Kinect, it was Project Natal. It was this thing sort of off in the horizon. It was going to be the next big thing in Xbox. It, we, no, we didn't really know what was going to happen with it originally, but it was just sort of there, like, this will be cool when it comes out. And, you know, rumors came out, and eventually it solidified into the Kinect, and it finally released. And it came out, and early on, at least from people I know and talked to, and for me personally, it seemed like a little bit of a gimmick. It seemed like it was designed to bring in those casual gamers 
uh, that we talked about last week, uh, as well as to undercut the, the Wii sales, because essentially it did the same thing, and you didn't have to buy extra controllers. Right. I'm going to comment here. I distinctly remember, and what I'm going to be operating off of for most of this segment uh, were, were the premises established by one of the, um, what would you call it, kind of demo teaser videos, a technical preview, as it were, it, when it was still Project Natal, and it's kind of those, you, you, you will be able to do these things. And to your point, Alex, there was, I think, a scene where we saw the entire family with your mom and dad, very 50s and 60s, Stepford Wives, Leave it to Beaver style, with uh, the older son and the younger daughter and the dog in the family living room, all cuddled together on the couch, you know, flicking left and right. So this is exactly the audience that they were trying to get to. And as we know now, if you ever try to do that, you get a confusing mess of arms and legs being recognized all together, and it wouldn't really work as they showed it. Theory V practice, folks. So, do you think this has really contributed in any meaningful way to Microsoft's shift, like we've talked about in past weeks and just right, you know, previously, that it's going to leech away the hardcore gamers from the focus of the company? Um, I don't really think that it, in and of itself, is doing this in any real significant way. Um, I think it might be auxiliary to it. It might be helping it along. It might be providing these extra, you know, features and other little things that it can add in to make the home setup easier to use, perhaps with less controllers and less remotes. But as far as the Kinect itself being this catalyst for this major shift, I don't think it's really responsible in any meaningful way. Um, however, as promised, they have tried to incorporate uh, Connect into more mainstream games, i.e. Mass Effect 3, where you do all kinds of stuff, like open doors, order squadmates around, assign powers, throw grenades, do a bunch of random things. Or, uh, more recently, in a, a patch to Skyrim, The Elder Scrolls V, you could do dragon shouts, either by holding a button or just by shouting at your screen. So, how successful has this been? Has this really added or subtracted to the gameplay anyway? Basically, does this really does this make it more fun? Well, you're going to have to take the lead on this one because you actually have a Kinect and both of those games. I saw you, for a significant amount of time, try the Skyrim Kinect voice commands to no effect. I don't know if that's because you had the formula wrong and you had to say something like Xbox before you said the spell name or whatever, but what what ended up being the resolution? Yeah, so when, when you were over there, it was that was actually literally right when I had downloaded the patch, so I was still playing around with it a little bit, but given a little bit more time, I have been able to get it to work uh, more or less su- successfully. Um, as far as the shouts go, uh, actually my brother has done a much better job using those, but uh, I've actually used those. My favorite part of the voice commands for Skyrim is actually the organization in the UI where you can say, I don't know, if you're in, in a menu, you can say sort by weight or sort by value 
or sort by name. It just it makes finding things a lot easier, and it's actually it's a, a feature that wasn't in the game to begin with. So that 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 was nice. I'm not sure if it makes it fun. It might make it easier, and so I guess less less of a hassle. So maybe t- a, a bit of a factor of taking away annoyance. Um, but Simon. Uh, I have a question. So you say it wasn't in the fe- a feature in the game originally, and then you say it was very helpful. Would so is was there a way to sort by like just pressing the Y button, like by weight, by you know name or anything? No, there's that, that's that's why I said it's there was no way in the original game to sort anything. There's there's no button or combination of things you could do, as far as I knew, and I, I played the game rather extensively for quite a while. I, I never saw any any way to do that uh, until this patch. All right, so then that brings up the point. If it were just a button, you wouldn't have this complaint at all, and Connect probably would be an even more clunky, you know, a clunkier way to implement that, I think. You just mash the Y button until you get the correct sorting filter, and that's all you need. That That, that is a fair point. Um, there, some people will make the argument that, oh, well, you know, speaking to the TV or shouting at the screen... That adds to the immersive factor of the game, um, and I'm not sure I, I wholly side with them. Uh, I will agree that you know it it, does, it can make it kind of fun uh, to you know to interact with the game in this way, but at the same time it can be a bit of a hassle if you're having to say it over and over again before it's recognized, uh, which was an issue I had a little bit more often in Mass Effect Three, where you know I would. I would walk around and go up to a door and say open and you know sometimes it would work other times it wouldn't um, and as I, th- I think this has something to do with learning curve because I, I noticed that throughout the game as I got further on it seemed to happen less and less where I would have to repeat myself but it still did happen occasionally so I'm not sure if that's just down to the connect not being perfected yet or if it's just an inherent flaw in it, I'm not really sure. I see. Uh, yeah, actually, my next question was going to be, uh, how, how did you feel that it was with Mass Effect? But it was just voice commands. You couldn't, like, swipe across the screen and, like, you know, point to a different area and deploy a teammate to that area. Yeah, I think that is going to be something that I'm not really sure how they're going to reconcile with the connect because it, it's it's so focused on you know, on identifying hands and feet and using those somehow as a control mechanism yet that to use your hands you have to either put down your controller or only hold your controller in one hand or something and that really goes against sort of the the hardcore principles and the the real mainstay of you know of of gaming uh, culture and gaming really practicality so I'm not sure how they're going to bring that together that may be something we see perhaps in something like Ghost Recon Future Soldier or something of that ilk that's a first person shooter but much more squad based and where you issue commands sort of in that in, in that in that nature so I'm not really sure point taken so what we've seen also is that some reports suggest that the Kinect will later on become a part of Microsoft's total home media center objective. As we've sort of we've been harping on, I feel like every single week 
in this Comcast. Uh, this is sort of maybe Microsoft's ultimate goal. And we've already seen this a little bit in the separate dashboard that you can operate through the Connect, where you can access content um, and your media and other things solely by using the Connect controls. However, some rumors have also suggested that if we ever do see internet browsing, and I think it's specifically IE9 come to the Xbox, then many reports suggest it will be Connect controlled. Do you think that would be successful, Simon? Well, first let me comment on some of the more technical aspects because I'm a Windows Power user and so I keep up with all this stuff uh, pretty actively. Um, first of all, uh, Media Center will not be included standard with Windows 8 because Microsoft said it was used uh, too little. So as far as that home Media Center is, that's going to change in however it's implemented between now and whenever Windows 8 is released and things of that nature. I guess what I meant there, Simon, was more their, their sort of entire home media, home entertainment, that whole, that whole setup that we've sort of been referencing and speaking about the last couple of times. Right, uh, and I'll, I'm getting to that because I'm going to say that Microsoft is probably going to replace it with a more direct service called Play to Xbox um, when you connect your... PC to, uh, or phone to the Xbox, uh, Windows 8 also has the Xbox companion app, but I do think it's very possible that when there's another rumor that, you know, IE Internet Explorer could be coming to the console, and therefore, if it's the very Metro style that we've seen with the Windows 8 tablet, you know, really big, round buttons with very, um, kind of Spartan finish, then it's... Inherently, it's touch-based, and that could also carry over very well to being kind of hand-grabby, wavy-based, because the flicks and the um, you know, touch works kind of analogous to the pointing. Yeah, because as, as we've seen in that special Connect dashboard that I mentioned, it's essentially the Metro interface like what we would see on the Windows 8 tablet preview where it's pretty much just swipe across swipe across but instead of physically touching the screen you're just holding your hand in the air and sort of moving it across as if as if you were so I I suppose it, it does seem to make sense in a certain way and as far as just using this for their home media setup I think that also to a certain extent, makes sense as well because it would remove the need for having a bunch of remotes because I know we're a decade on from the invention of the universal remote. It's actually, it's funny. I saw a tweet by, I think it was Jim Gaffigan. I, I can never pronounce his name right. Uh, but he tweeted something like, and today celebrating the anniversary, uh, the 10th anniversary of the creation of the universal remote. And he showed his home media th- setup where he had something like six or seven remotes just all lined up next to each other. And I think that's, that's, that's pretty telling because even though we have created these universal remotes, we've had them around for quite a while, they're not actually that universal. And in a way, I guess they're not that useful. And I think the ultimate goal, instead of combining everything into one, should be to eliminate the need for as many as possible. And so in, a, in that spirit, I almost kind of praise the Connect 
for its way of reducing our need for various remotes. And I want to launch onto another major discussion here. Going back again to that technical preview video, we saw this uh, this boy. Um, he picked up a skateboard or kind of like a Tony Hawk ride thing, and he held it up to what was then the Project Natal sensor, now the Connect, and it detected it. And it became kind of like the, his skateboard in-game for, I don't know, like Skate or Tony Hawk or whatever he was playing. And then he proceeded to use that like if it were Tony Hawk Ride, except it was an inanimate object. It was just that the Kinect was able to now detect it and factor it into his motion, you know, kicking and then doing flips and jumps uh, in his living room with it. We have yet to see anything remotely resembling that kind of functionality take place. I'm wondering if that's something that just got uh, completely lost, or is that something that they're actually going to work on? Well, I think that was that was rather ambitious from Microsoft showing that off. I think even if we do see that at some point in the future, I do think that will be further down the line and definitely in the next console generation if it does happen, because... If you think about it, the technology necessary to not only scan something like that into its system, but then also to be able to recognize and really make sense of it is pretty impressive. And taking into account, I think it's what it's Moore's law that technology or the chipsets double in power every 18 months to two years. Even given that, I think we're going to need some pretty powerful computing to be able to do something like that. Yeah, so it's it's like the Kinect just can't detect it. It's like it's a different kind of matter almost. It's kind of existentialist, like a Buddhist Zen koan. It is as it will be, not as it was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe that's something we see in the in the Kinect too. So who knows? All right. Um, I think that's pretty much it for this episode of the Comcast. Um, again, we'd like to just make another um, request for you to sign up on Wiki Game Guides if you haven't already. Um, and if you have, please comment below or send us emails to comcastwgg at gmail.com. All lowercase, no punctuation. And another way, if you want, I think there's also a suggestion thread in the forums if you want to go there. That seems to be the, the least popular way to reach us as of now. But, hey, you know, maybe you could turn it around if you want. But I would also just like to say thank you so much for listening. Uh, we hope you keep listening. And we look forward to all your wonderful comments and emails. And we'll leave you this week with the uh, inspiring, albeit slightly maybe altered, uh, words of Admiral Stephen Hackett, 5th Fleet, Alliance Command. Never before have so many come together from all quarters of gaming. But never before have we faced an enemy such as this. Zynga will show us no mercy. We must give them no quarter. They will terrorize our land parties. We must stand fast at the face of that terror. They will advance until our last console falls. But we will not fall. We will prevail.
Each of us will be defined by our actions in the coming battle. Stand fast. Stand strong. Stand together. Simon out.